1956 Joey Tower, caution wave turns heavy, triple turn, departing the parallel wind 2505, runway 24, right, clear to land. Hello everyone, welcome back to the Fearless Fly. I'm one of your hosts, James, and joining me as per usual is Grant. Hi James, good to be back, and in this one, uh, this one's going to be interesting. Yeah, so in this episode, we're going to be talking about air traffic control, communication systems, and satellite tracking. In the last episode, we talked about flight planning, ETOPS, and why the route you are traveling doesn't appear as a straight line on those in-flight map displays. Instead, it appears as though you're traveling in a curve. Anyway, so let's get into this episode. Yeah, so air traffic control is simply the control of aircraft, whether that be on the ground or an airspace that is designated as controlled airspace. But obviously, there's a lot more going on there in the background to air traffic control than just simply talking into a radio and telling a pilot where to go. Yeah, that's right. The first form of air traffic control, and we refer to that as shorthand as ATC, but the first form of air traffic control took place on the 25th of February in 1920 at Croydon Airport in London. And the tower was a simple wooden hut with windows on all four sides, and it provided basic traffic weather and location information to pilots. And a heck of a lot has now changed since that time when they started in 1920. Yeah, so I guess the primary purpose of air traffic control is to prevent collisions and ensure an expeditious and organised flow of airborne traffic. In some cases, such as uncontrolled airspace, they can also provide support to pilots, such as weather information or their location if they get a bit lost or uh, there's other traffic in the area. The majority, if not all large commercial aircraft operations, fly in what is termed controlled airspace. And as a result, the pilot will monitor their radio on a particular frequency that has been assigned to the airspace that they're flying in. As the flight progresses into another controller's airspace, the flight will be handed over, which generally also means a change in the radio frequency. Yeah, so to prevent two aircraft meeting up in the same bit of airspace, they've created air traffic separation rules which ensure a minimum safe distance separating aircraft at all times. For example, travelling from the Middle East across India through Malaysia to Singapore, aircraft shall only fly at an odd level. Examples are 33,000, 35,000, 37,000 feet. Whilst travelling west on the same airway route, that's the other direction, you'd have to fly at even levels like 34,000 feet or 36 or 38,000 feet. Also, whilst crossing the ocean parts of this journey, such as the Arabian Sea or the Bay of Bengal, for aircraft at the same level on the same airway, there must be at least 10 minutes flying time separation between them. So you can see there are lots of separation rules. Yeah, and in controlled airspace, such as vectoring in for the approach, there's many rules, including rules to keep smaller aircraft away from larger aircraft, not only just for separation, but also just to make sure aircraft don't fly into the wake turbulence of other aircraft. An example is, say, the rules for arriving aircraft. Aircraft are grouped into a wake turbulence category, which is based upon their wake characteristics. And as a generalisation, the larger the aircraft, the more wake turbulence it creates. 
So if my triple seven is landing and then another triple seven is landing behind me, there needs to be a minimum of four miles distance separating us. Whilst the 737, which is a lighter aircraft landing behind me, would need at least five miles separation. So there are many rules for this that cover takeoff, radar vectoring, en route, landing, etc. The air traffic controllers must follow, all with the aim of reducing wake-induced turbulence, maintaining separation and ensuring an orderly and efficient flow of airborne traffic. However, the pilot in command has the final authority to ensure the safe operation of the aircraft, and if required, like in an emergency, they can deviate from the air traffic controller's instructions as required to ensure the safe operation of their aircraft. So the language that should be used is English with air traffic control. However, a national air traffic control service in a non-English speaking country is allowed and will likely talk to their local based airlines in their native language. Yes, and there are implications for this, the foremost being that, say, non-local speaking aircraft flying in this country, they lose their situational awareness. That is, they're not really situationally aware of where the other aircraft is because they're speaking in a different language. So there is a downside to this. And a lot of air traffic control centers have realized this, and I think they're moving towards more English being the main language of uh, aviation in their countries. Yeah, so most people are familiar with the air traffic control tower as an airport. It's the tall, skinny building with lots of windows at the top of it and loads of aerials on top of that. And here, the air traffic controllers, we're looking out of the windows and guiding the aircraft on the ground, giving takeoff and landing clearances simply just by looking out of the window. Yes, and the, the job requires a precision and a damn good knowledge of the rules and procedures. And one needs to be flexible and adaptable in changing circumstances such as weather and all of this under the pressure of time. As you can imagine, this job can have high levels of stress compared to other jobs in the general population. Can you notice that as a pilot? Can you notice when controllers are stressed? Yes, yes, you do notice it actually. Their voice, I suppose it's like most people, if they get stressed, they either increase the pace at which they're speaking or their pitch goes up. Say going into Chicago when it's really busy, you can hear it in their voice. They are really controlling a heck of a lot of aircraft. And if aircraft aren't doing exactly what they say, that you can hear their voice even get more stressed. But there's periods of high demand for air traffic controllers. They do an amazing job. So yeah, Chicago, Heathrow, London, get all the major airports at peak times. You can hear it in the controller's voice. So that's the air traffic control tower which is responsible for stuff happening close to and on the airport. Yeah, and just to finish up there, there is a new system that's being implemented called a remote or digital tower. And this is where the tower controllers are actually based somewhere else other than the local airport and use video and other surveillance data to control the aircraft around the airport. That's right, James. And uh, London City Airport is a good example of that which has a 160-foot high or 50-metre-high digital control tower, which provides a 360-degree view of the airport. And there are numerous cameras on this tower, and they're fed by secure fibre networks to the Swanwick Control Centre, which is 72 miles away or 115 kilometres away. Yeah, and in this Swanwick Centre, there's 14 HD screens, high definition that is, where the NAT controllers receive the live video and audio feeds and the controllers can do their controlling remotely. And they can actually zoom in and magnify these screens up to 30 times closer for inspection. Yes, that's pretty cool. 
have you been to the Swanwick Centre? Yes, I, I did go. I got invited by um, a passenger who was an air traffic controller many years ago when I lived in the UK. I think it was about 2004 that I went, and it was fairly new. It's on the south coast of the United Kingdom, and they control most of the aircraft in the UK airspace and in Welsh airspace. And since I've been there in the last few years, this is where the remote tower has been removed. But as I recall, it's a fascinating centre. And I remember the controller telling me that if there's a fire in the building, there's this box that comes down over the controllers and it's fireproof and they can continue controlling while the building's on fire, supposedly. It's supposed to be fireproof and they're able to continue controlling. Don't quote me 100% on that, but it was words to the effect of that. It was uh, quite an interesting statement to make because you can imagine if the air traffic control goes down, it's just utter chaos in the air. Luckily, we have transponders to avoid each other and, and rules to follow if we do lose comms, but to lose the whole of the UK, there's obviously a very good backup system in place and the fire thing was one of their primary concerns. Uh, approach and terminal control is the next on the list. These are the controllers they facilitate with the a local airport or maybe a group of airports that are grouped together. But this is coming uh, into controlled airspace from the cruise before they speak to the tower or climbing out of the airport going up to the cruise. Yeah, and these controllers generally handle traffic within 30 to 50 nautical miles, which is around 56 to 93 kilometers from the airport. These controllers, they don't have access to a window. Instead, they solely rely on radar screens and they generally handle the departures, arrivals and en route traffic. Now, in the old days, a big radar would spin around and an aircraft would pop up as a blip on the radar screens. The controller would have to ask the blip who they were, what their height was, and what heading they were doing. With the introduction of transponders coupled with the GPS global positioning system, an aircraft now sends its information to a system called a secondary surveillance radar. In essence, this is a computer which generates a display and a continuous readout of its height, speed, whether it's climbing or descending, and direction of travel. In other words, it provides the controller with a data tag of every aircraft in their control area. Yeah, and these computers, the controllers have, can even work out if there's going to be a conflict with another aircraft. And in some cases, uh, if the aircraft is getting too close to terrain because the pilot has not followed proper descent procedures, so they're pretty uh, quick computers. Yeah, pretty advanced stuff. Okay, the last one, area control centers, or another name is en route control centers. And they generally uh, provide control in the upper airspace, that is the cruising levels of most aircraft. And these controllers, they strictly follow rules that relate to separation standards defined by rules regarding the minimum distances, both vertically and horizontally between aircraft. Yeah, and these uh, area controllers generally control a huge amount of airspace and thus would likely use a long-range uh, radar or the ability to use secondary surveillance radar with the capability to see aircraft a lot further away than just simply using terminal radar controllers. Going a step further, in remote areas such as the world's oceans where a radar wouldn't work, airspace is divided up into FIRs, which stands for Flight Information Regions. And these FIRs are controlled by oceanic controllers. They're similar to area controllers. And these oceanic controllers provide ATC services using a thing called procedural control. That is, they use the aircraft's position reports, such as time, distance, speed, 
to separate the aircraft. The disadvantage is the aircraft must be separated by greater distances. Yeah, and the North Atlantic track system is a really good example of this. It's pretty much an airborne highway or motorway that is set up twice a day in order to safely maximise the prevailing heavy loads of traffic between North America and Europe and the return. Satellite tracking, though, is making this a lot easier nowadays for oceanic controllers to monitor and control aircraft within their airspace. Oh, just on a side note, surely with the satellite tracking and GPS tracking, procedural control is slowly becoming a thing of the past and they can have more live sort of tracking. Yes, you are right. And they are reducing the separation because of this satellite tracking. So they're able to utilize the airspace a lot more efficiently. I suppose now is a good time to talk about delays. Airports want to maximize their runway use. Weather is a big factor as any weather can have an effect on being able to continually maximize the use of your airport. Fog being the worst problem because the separation minimum distance for landing can almost be three times the standard separation for a given day. In essence, aircraft will have to go into a holding pattern and await their allotted turn for approach to land. Yeah, and using this fog example, you can now just imagine how much stress that puts on the air traffic controllers when their runway capacity has been significantly reduced, not only where to hold these aircraft and to send them in the hold, but dealing with diversions when aircraft don't have enough fuel to hold and need to leave that area to divert to an alternate airport. Yeah, so let's talk about communication methods between controllers and aircraft. The first one is the radio using VHF or very high frequency, and the aircraft must be in line of sight with the ground controller's antenna. And the next one is high frequency, and you don't need to be in line of sight, but this one is sometimes difficult to hear, and there's a lot of background noise going on. Yeah, so another way that air traffic control communicate with pilots is called the CPDLC system, which stands for Controller Pilot Data Link Communications. In essence, this is simply like sending a text message to a friend and a friend replying by text. The air traffic controller can transmit the message and a visual display on the flight deck allows the pilot to acknowledge it. The pilot can then act on it accordingly. Also, the pilot can send a message with a request as well. For example, requesting a climb to a higher level or a deviation around weather that is ahead of them. Basically, CPDLC frees up the radio, thereby reducing radio congestion. It also allows for better communications over areas where there is poor or no radio reception, being over the ocean as a primary example. Like the radio frequencies in the area you are flying, the pilots must log on to the appropriate code in the airspace they are flying in order to use the CPDLC. The only problem is you don't get an immediate answer to a request. But it's a great tool for planning ahead and works really well over areas where there is no line-of-sight radio like that of VHF. ACARS, which stands for Aircraft Communications Addressing and Reporting System, is basically a messaging system whereby controllers can send ground clearances, oceanic clearances, or companies can send data such as load sheets or en route uh, weather information to the aircraft, and then the crew can either view the message on a screen or in some cases use the onboard printer to print the message. This message can be sent by VHF, HF, or satellite. So the main difference between CPDLC and ACARS is CPDLC is to pilots and ATC texting each other, and ACARS is pilots communicating with their operation centers 
also long messages between air traffic control like pre-departure clearances. And another form of communication could be the satellite phone. If all comms fail, we have a list of all the phone numbers of the air traffic control units around the world. And as a last resort, we can get on the satellite phone and dial the number and talk directly to the controller. This has limitations like at the top of the planet and for a few hours each side of the North Pole as the satellites are out of sight. And like VHF communication, you need to be able to see a satellite in order to use it. Have you ever used the satellite phone before? Yes, I have. Up around north of Manx, when we were having problems with the HF radio, and we got into spoke to um, the controllers up there for satellite phone. And once over Africa, we had problems with the frequencies that are really bad, and we just jumped on the satellite phone. And it's pretty good talking to them, actually. It's actually really clear, but uh, it fixed the problem. So that pretty much covers communications. And speaking of satellites, let's finish up on satellite tracking of aircraft. Yeah, so the the GPS has made tracking aircraft a lot easier nowadays. And many people out there, including yourself, may have heard of an app called Flight Radar 24, which is a a live application you can have on your phone, computer, tablet, and it just shows aircraft currently flying pretty much anywhere in the world. And this is taken from information supplied by the aircraft to air traffic control. So how are they getting all this live data through to their app from planes? Basically, the aircraft is transmitting its height, speed, and direction of travel to a satellite in real time. And the satellite passes this information to a server on the ground, which in turn can then transmit it to an organization that want it, like the air traffic controllers or an airline's operations department. And, of course, Flight Radar 24. It's worth talking about the main device here, uh, which is being used by large aircraft, but it could also be used by drones and even, say, a person flying a paraglider. Yes, it's called ADSB, which is uh, which we talked about briefly in a previous episode. And this ADSB stands for the A parts for automatic, so it doesn't need pilot input. The D is it depends on the accurate position and velocity data from the aircraft's navigation system, or say a GPS. S is for surveillance, which provides position, altitude, velocity, and other data to organisations that want it. And finally, the B, which stands for broadcast, in that it is continually broadcasting. And it can broadcast this information up to every half a second. Yeah, and we would definitely go and recommend checking out Flight Radar 24. It's a really good sort of interesting app to have a look at. So there we have it, really. We've talked about air traffic control and the three uh, basic areas that they control, which, when you think about it, is pretty much everywhere. We've discussed the different sorts of communications, line of sight, high frequency, satellite, and basically just text messaging. And then we just finished up there by talking about aircraft tracking. So definitely go check out Light Radar 24. It's a really fascinating app to have a look at. You can see the peak traffic flows across the North Atlantic at different times of day, going from east to west and west to east. And all this information is pretty much provided by that system called ADSB. So I guess next week, what are we going to be talking about? Next week, we're going to be talking to a member of the cabin crew, and we're going to be talking to a trainer about how they go about their initial training and annual ongoing training. So that was quite an interesting episode, uh, learning about the different types of communications that aircraft and air traffic control use while up in the sky. And we'll we'll look forward to speaking to you guys next week. From me, it's uh, goodbye.
And from me, thank you very much to your ears for listening. And I hope you have a wonderful day or night wherever you are. Goodbye.